Good morning, family. It is good to be together this morning. Now, this sermon comes to you a little bit late because we had a bit of a glitch on Sunday. So let me just echo uh, the apologies from the media team and the church. Uh, but because we love you so much and we love God's word and we want you to hear from God's word, we're recording this sermon this morning. And let me say to you, as I prepared this sermon, I was encouraged and challenged by it. And I believe that God will do the very same thing to you as you hear from it. We're beginning a new series this morning, a series titled Songs of the Redeemed uh, from the book of Psalms. And this morning we're looking at, at Psalm 90, which begins book four. My name is Reggie, and the title of our sermon this morning is A Song for the Homesick. Let me read Psalm 90 for us. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were formed, or you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, all by reason of strength, 18. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen trouble. Let the work, let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray this morning that you would help us to see that you are the only place that is our true refuge our true home. In Jesus' name, amen. A place called home. A place called home is a South African series that aired in the late noughties. Now, I'm not sure how many of you know that series or remember of it. Now, I'm certain there are a few of you at this moment who are even wondering where it aired, which was on SABC One. Now, this show was a story that told the other side of the glitter and glamour 
of this city of gold. It showed the story of the homeless. How the homeless face a very different and harsh reality in this city. They are displaced and harassed and don't enjoy the benefits that you and I usually associate with being at home or a home. See, when you and I think of a home, there are a number of a wide range of emotions that we associate with that. And these are emotions such as home is safety. Home is protection, security, and home is warmth and love. Emotions that those who are homeless seldomly experience. Now, it is worthwhile for me to say that this show is not at all depressing, but it is a show that is funny and engaging. But what it portrays is the reality of being without a home. It shows so vividly what it looks like to be away from home. And book four, which Psalm 90 forms a part of, is compiled or put together at a time when the people of God, the Israelites, are away from home. They are homeless. They are not at home in Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. They are in Babylon as exiles. They are homeless. Moreover, the psalm that has come before this, Psalm 89, which is a backdrop for this psalm, shows us that they are also without a king. See, the king has been cast off, he has been rejected, and the covenant has been renounced. The throne of the king has been thrown to the ground. Psalm 89 verse 38 following tells us that. And so we see here that the people of God are in exile without a home and without a king. Two things that the people of God associated with God's dwelling, with God's presence. And so there's no doubt that as the people of God sang the two songs at the end of book three, Psalm 88 and Psalm 89, which are by far the saddest and unhappiest psalms or songs in the Psalter, the questions that they would have pondered are these. Is God's home no longer with these people? Is God's dwelling no longer with these people? Have the promises of God to David and Israel failed? These are the kind of things they would have pondered as they sang Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. But you see, Psalm 90 has been put here by the editors of the Psalms to give an answer to that very question they would have had. To show these homesick Israelites that the place where they can find true refuge, a true home, is God. This is the true place where they can find a true refuge. And let me say this. This psalm will show you and I today as well that the only place where we can find our true refuge is God. Because you and I are often tempted to try and find a true home, to try and find satisfaction, safety, in every other place but God. But the psalm today will challenge us and encourage us to see that God is the only place where we can find our true home. Now I have four points to help us through our psalm today. Four points, uh, which are home, wonder, wisdom, and hope. Let me say those, those four points again. Home, wisdom, home, wonder, wisdom, and hope. 
Our very first point is home. And for that, we will look at verse 1 and verse 2. Now, it is worthwhile for me to say before I read verse 1 and verse 2, that in the Hebrew Bible, the title of the psalm, which is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, is actually considered to be part of verse 1. So as we read verse 1 and 2, we will read the title as being part of that. So let me go ahead and read verse 1 and 2 for us. A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Our first point, home. Now I want you to notice immediately what we see in verse 1. In verse 1 we are told that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now this very phrase could have been translated, a prayer of Moses, or the prayer to Moses or for Moses. And so what we are meant to see by these very words is that this psalm or this prayer is meant to make us to think back or to recall the time when Moses led the people of God. A time when Moses prayed for the people of God. When Moses was the mediator for the people of God. It's meant to make us to think of that time. And so that as we read it, we think back of the kind of relationship that the people of God had with God at that very moment. You see, this is a prayer that Moses prays, not only for the people of God in the time of the Exodus, but it is a prayer that he prays for the people of God who are now in the exile and the people of God in the future as well. Moses is the mediator for God's people. And so he prays this very prayer, these very words for them. He prays this prayer because he longs for the people of God to have the kind of relationship that they had with God during the Exodus. And this is the prayer that Moses wants for us, that he wants for the the Israelites who are in exile at the moment. He wants them to long for the kind of relationship that they had with God during the Exodus. And actually it is worthwhile for me to also point out that in book 4, that Psalm 90 is part of, Moses is mentioned seven times, which is much more than any other book in the Psalter. And this is mentioned for the very purpose of us seeing that Moses is a mediator for God's people. And we are meant to think back to a time when the people of God did not have a king, while God was their king and Moses was the mediator. And this psalm shows us this because... It wants us to see that the one person who had a kind of relationship where God was their home is Moses. Moses is the true example of someone who had God as their home. And so one commentator says this, Alec Moita says these very words, Who better than Moses could marvel of finding a home in God throughout generations of homelessness? That is, his sojourn in Egypt, and his time in the desert watching generations die and then watch the promised land from a distance. It is only Moses who is the true example of someone who finds their true home in God. And we see this here, that Moses prays that what he had with God, it is what these, these exiles would also have. It is what we today would also have. 
says there's a longing in the psalm for the people of God to have the kind of relationship that he had with God. For them to have God as their home, despite them being in exile. See, there's a longing for Moses that the people of God would come to find God as their home, as their dwelling place. And you see, for the Israelites, this is what he wants for them. And it is what he wants for us as well. See, what each person that God has created in this world longs for is, is exactly this. Every person that has been created on the face of this earth longs to find a true home. And the true home that they long for is God. See, whether they know it or not, the true home that every person longs for is God. The kind of relationship that they long for is the relationship that Moses had with God. And it is the kind of relationship that these Christians who are in exile, who are away from home, long for. It is a relationship with God, having God as their home. And so Moses prays these words for them. It is a prayer for every people, for every person who longs for God. And like I said, every person, whether they know it or not, actually longs for God. And so, in the words of Maya Angelou, whom you should go and read up on her to figure out whether she's a Christian or not, this is what she says, The ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go. See, the ache for a true home lives in all of us. Every person that has been made longs for a true home. And this is because God has made us with a desire to long for him. He has made our hearts to long for him. He's made our hearts to long for a true home. But you see what most people do? What most people do is they try and find a home outside of God. They try to find a home, a safe place, a place where they can find purpose outside of God. They look for this in their career, in success, in materialism, in family, in relationships and sex. But here's the thing. None of those things can ever give us the longing, the ache that you and I have. This kind of ache can only be satisfied by us coming to God. And Moses prays that we would come to realize that. That the only place we can find our true home is in God. And so, in the words of C.S. Lewis who says, If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only longing, or the only logical explanation rather, is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which nothing this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is this. I was made for another world. So this psalm wants to show you and me that we were made for another world. We were made for God. And God is the only place where you and I can find our true home. Our true home is in God. And the Israelites need to see this. As well. But notice in verse 2 why we can trust God to be our true home. Why the Israelites can trust God to be their true home. Listen to what verse 2 says God is from everlasting to everlasting. See, because God is eternal, we can trust Him to be our eternal home. This is what this verse wants us to see. I mean, what else? 
could be as comforting. What else could you trust in to give you long-lasting satisfaction, to give you a true purpose, to give you a true home, than this God who has known time from eternity past to eternity future. See, it is only the eternal God who can fulfill our eternal longing, who can give us this eternal aching that you and I have. It is only God where we can find our true home. And notice what the psalmist says to us in verse 2 as well. The psalmist compares to us, compares for us rather, God to the mountains. This eternal God was before the mountains. Now if you know anything about mountains, or if you stood or driven next to the mountains, you would have had this unsettling feeling of standing next to this object that is immovable. You would have had this, that feeling of standing next to this object that can't move. Siwambale and I stayed in Cape Town for three years. In front of the place or the home we stayed in, there was a mountain called Musenbeck Peak. And, and every time we walked out of our house, we would see this mountain called Musenbeck Peak. And every time you would get this unsettling feeling of this immovable object that is in front of you, and every now and then, Bali and I would take, would have dates at a place called Gak Bay, and we would take a route via a road called Okapsavech. And we would get to drive right next to the mountain. And when I was there, I would always be thinking, I hope no one will drive into this mountain. Or I hope that we won't drive into the mountain. Because if we do, the mountain won't move. It's immovable. It won't move. But now here's the thing we're meant to see. If the mountains are immovable, oh, imagine. Imagine how steadfast and dependable the God who existed before the mountains, the God who actually formed the mountains and the earth and the world before us. If the mountains are immovable, then God is a much more stable home for us. He's a stable home in this unstable world of ours. God is someone whom we can trust to be our true home because he's eternal. He's a stable home. We can trust in him. See, the God of eternity is a God who offers himself as our home, a home that is stable. And so you and I should turn to him because he's the only place where we can find our true home. And so at this moment, I would say to you, turn to your neighbor in the office or wherever you're listening to this at this time, or turn to yourself and remind yourself of of these words. God is our home. God is our true home. Say these words to yourself. God is our true home. That's our very first point. Our second point is wonder. And we will look at verse 3 to verse 11 for that very point. First point, second point is wonder. Wonder with an A. Wonder with an A, not an O. Now, I am someone who's got uh, English as my first uh, additional language. So, so I hope when I said wonder, you did not think of wonder with an O, but wonder with an A. It's wonder with an A. And what you see, we will see from this very passage, wonder from verse 3 to verse verse 11, is that all of mankind have wandered away from God. And this is what here the Bible calls absurd and foolish. 
See, from the beginning of time, mankind has chosen to wander away from this eternal home, to walk away from this stability that God offers. So from the beginning of time, man has decided to build his own home or to, to try and find his own home, to try and find purpose or safety outside of God, to do it by himself. And it is what these Israelites who would have been reading this poem did. They tried to find a home outside of God. And it is what Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 do. It is what the generation that Moses led to the promised land did. They wandered for 40 years because they were trying to find satisfaction anywhere else but God. And so God lets them wander for 40 years. And it is what you and I do as well. We try and find satisfaction outside of God. And you see what the Bible tells us so clearly is this. It is impossible for us to do this. It is impossible for us to try and find a home outside of God. Because God is the only true home. It is impossible for us to do that. And here's the thing. You and I actually know that. We know this because whenever we are away from Jesus, we often find in ourselves this restlessness, this longing to be back at home with God. We know this. We find this restlessness in our hearts because we know that we are away from our true home. And so the psalmist will show us here why we are unable to find our home outside of God. And in verse 3 to 11, he shows us so clearly two things. The reason why you and I are unable to find a true home outside of God is this. You and I are frail and you and I are overcome by death. Two things. We are frail and we are overcome by death. And he actually uses a number of images to show us these two things. To show us that you and I are frail and you and I are overcome by death. And these are the kind of images that he uses between verse 3 to 11. I hope you follow with me as I give you these images. This is the very first one, very first one in verse 3. He says, you and I are dust. And if you know anything about, about dust, dust is blown by the wind from one place to another. Dust is not like the mountains which are not movable. You and I aren't like God. God does not move. But you and I are moved, are swayed by so many things. And you see what this verse here shows us is that we are frail and we are overcome by death. What this, what this very phrase actually echoes back to is Genesis. See, in Genesis we are told that God makes man from, makes man from the dust of the earth. And when you read that very verse, it does not tell us of composition, what you and I are made out of. Genesis does not tell us that you and I are made from dust, but it tells us of what our identity is. Our identity is that we are dust. When God makes Adam and Eve in Genesis, they are mortal, they are frail. He makes them dust. He makes them dust so that they are dependent on the tree of life that he places in the garden. Adam and Eve are frail and would be overcome by death if they do not eat from the tree of life. See, you and I are frail, and we are overcome by death. We're not as great as we think we are. Humanity often thinks of himself as that, that they don't need God. They think of themselves as being supermen, that they can live and build a life for themselves outside of God. But the Bible is so clear, we are dust. But notice the other images that he uses. You and I are like a watch in the night. The watch in the night was usually four hours long, and then it ends. Four hours 
and then it ends. That's my life and your life before God. It is four hours and then it's gone. We are frail and then we are overcome by death. Look at what he says then next in verse 5. You and I are like a dream. And then he continues to say, you and I are like grass that is renewed in the morning. It flourishes in the morning. And then by evening it, feathers, it, 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 it fades and withers. That's what happens to grass. It fades and withers. If you've looked outside your lawn, you probably think, wait, this is not what happens to my grass. But you see, this is poetic language. And remember when Moses writes this, or the time it, it is meant to point us to, the time we are meant to think of. We are meant to think of the time when the people of God wander in the desert for a while, and they see grass that is scorched by the sun, that is there in the morning, but by evening it's gone. It's poetic language to show us how feeble, how frail you and I are. We are overcome by death. And verse 9 and 10 show us the very same thing as well. So you and I are not as great as we think we are. We're not supermen. We can't build a life for ourselves outside of God. We can't. We can't build a home. We can't find purpose. We can't find meaning. We can't find a true home outside of God. We are frail. Again, when we stayed in Cape Town, this very same mountain that I mentioned called Musenberg Peak, beautiful mountain that you would often see grass and trees on. At one point, for I think it was one point or twice actually when we were in Cape Town, we saw fires in that very mountain. As you see, in this, in the, like yesterday when there was a fire that started, that started in Cape Town, right close to the University of Cape Town. It is worthwhile to say at this moment, at the end of this sermon, would you please take some time to pray for Cape Town and the fires there that God would bring an end to it, that you'd use the different people who are working there to do that. But anyway, back to the story I was telling. So every now and then we would see these fires. And at one point we would see the mountain, the one day. The mountain looks green and beautiful. It looks lovely. You see the trees and, and the flowers and the grass that's there. But after the few days when the fire has come, what you would see is ashes. The mountain will be grey. Very similar to what you, when you and I have a braai. We make a braai, you've got coal that is there. It looks alive when the fire is going. But you know what happens on the next day? The next day you get there, it's ashes. See, that's how the Bible describes you and I. We are like that, the, the, the mountain that is taken away by fire, or we are like the coal that we use uh, for our braai. It is alive the one day, but the next, it is ashes. You and I are frail. We are dust. We are dream. We are like grass. So we should not think much of ourselves. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, We are not cedars or oaks, but we are only poor grass which is vigorous in the spring, but lasts not a summer's through. What is there upon the earth that is more frail than humanity? The grass is a golden hour, even as man in his youth has a heyday of flowery glory. Listen to this last line, and listen to it very carefully. Here's the history of grass, sown, grown, blown, and gone. Listen to it again. Here's the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, moan, and gone. The history of man is not much more. 
The history of man is not much more you and I are frail. We are frail and we are overcome by death. And so if this is our identity, if this is who you and I are, why would we trust in ourselves as being the, the people who can find purpose by themselves, as the people who can make a home for themselves and leave the eternal God who is immovable? We are frail. And if anything, COVID-19 has reminded us of that, that we are frail and overcome by death. But here's a God who is immovable, who was before the mountains. See, the psalmist here wants us to turn back to this God, but he wants us to see that the reason for our frailty, more importantly, look at verse 7 and verse 11, is because of God's anger. See, God would not let us wonder. God is not just going to let us decide to walk away from him and find our own purpose outside of him. He's not going to let us do that. See, God brings all men to account. And that's what he did with Adam and Eve. And that's what he would do with all men. This is what he did with this generation of Israelites who find themselves in exile. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says to us, For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? If you see this verse so clearly, it tells us that the frailty of man and the fact that man is overcome by death is because of God's anger. Which points us back to Genesis. This language here echoes back to Genesis. When God made Adam and Eve, he made man and he puts them in the, in the garden. He makes them mortal, they're frail. But he puts a tree of life there that they may eat of it and be sustained. And live and enjoy a relationship with him. But you see what happens in Genesis, Adam and Eve wander away from God. They decide to build a, way, a home for themselves outside of God. They decide they'll find meaning outside of God. And so God kicks them out of the garden. And when he kicks them out of the garden, because they're away from the tree of life, now they experience the reality of their frailty and the impending death that they would face. See, it's because we are away from the tree of life that we experience the frailty of death and the impending death that will come to all of us. Frailty and death come to us because of God's judgment. Now let me just say quickly, be careful of pointing a finger on Adam and Eve and saying, hey, it was their fault. Because you and I in the same way wander away from God. It is our nature to wander away from God. Think of your own life. Think of your own heart and how you try and live life in your own terms and not God's terms. So you and I aren't different from Adam and Eve. And God knows that. He knows our secret sins. And so he's just when he brings this punishment upon all of mankind. But here, here's this. Listen to this. There is an escape from this punishment. There's an escape from it. And the escape is coming to this true God who's our true home. This God who comes and takes away this anger from us in Jesus Christ. See, when we trust in him, this God becomes our true refuge. He's the only place where we can find refuge. And the Israelites themselves needed to see this. They needed to be reminded of this. Because they were beginning to trust in their king. Or they had actually been trusting in their king. And trusting in the fact that they have a temple. And they have the land. And God takes all of those away from them. He takes away kingship. He takes away the temple which is destroyed. 
And he also takes them away from the land. They're spat out by the land. And they're in exile. And God does this to show them that the only place they can find ultimate refuge is him. The only place you and I can find ultimate refuge is him. So, turn to your neighbor or say to yourself right now, let us not wander away from God. Let us not wander away from our true home. The third and point, fourth point uh, are very short. Um, our first point was home. God is our home. Our second point was wonder. Our third point is wisdom. Wisdom, let's read verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See what the psalmist is asking here for is, God, make us aware of our frailty. Make us aware of death that is impending for all of us. God, make us aware of judgment that is coming. So that the only logical explanation for us, or the only logical response for us, is to turn to you and to live for you. This is what verse 12 is asking for. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This verse is not saying, it is not merely saying, God help us to count how many days we've lived on this earth to see how many days are left for us. Yes, in one point, in one sense, you can use it to say that. But what this verse is saying to us is this. God teaches to number our days so that we may live the present one as though it was our last so that we may live the present day as though it was our last. So that we may live this day for you. So that we may live this day for you. That we may use it for you. God, help us to live for today. And help us to live today for you. Let me say that again. God, help us to live for today. And to live for today. And to live today for you. Help us, O oh God, as we await for you to have a heart of wisdom, to realize that the only way we can live in this life is by coming to you, our true home. To come to you to get away from your wrath. To come to you to begin to live for you. This is the only way that we can live for you. And here, here's the thing. The Israelites actually do this. They do this. In a separate book written by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 39 from verse 4 to verse 10, we are told that Jeremiah says to the people of God, where God has placed you, which is the exile, it is God who has taken you there. That's what he says to them. And he says this to them, God says this to you now, live for him while you are in exile. Live for God. Have the heart of wisdom. Live for him by loving the Lord your God and loving the people around you. Live for the prosperity of the city that I have sent you. Live for Babylon. And the only way that they could live for Babylon is if they love God and they love their neighbor. That's the only way they could do it. This is how we get the heart of wisdom. This is how we number our days. This is how we live today as though it was our last. We love God and we love those around us. We make God our home. The verse that everyone loves, verse 11, that says, For I know the plans I have for you, comes on the back of that. 
These people find themselves in a difficult place, in exile. But God says, live for me in this way. And verse 10, he makes this promise. I will return you to the promised land, for I know the plans I have for you. See, the beginning of wisdom is this. Trust in God and not ourselves to be our true home. Trust in God to be the place where we find purpose, where we find meaning. And so we live for him. And we love others. And you see, when we live this way, John Piper says, then we don't waste our life. We don't. We don't waste our life when we live this way. Listen to John Piper. Desire. Desire that your life count for something great. Long for something. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this. Do not coast through life without a passion. Let me read it again. Desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this. Do not coast through life without a passion. The only way where you can find a passion for this life, the only way that you can find a meaning and purpose for this life, you can find a home, is by coming to God and then living for Him, living a life that has eternal significance, a life that is not wasted, a life that shows that you have a heart of wisdom. So again, say to yourself, or say to your neighbor in your office, or say to your family who's next to you, live for God, for that is the heart of wisdom. Our fourth point, and our very last point, as we come to the very end of our sermon this morning. Hope is our fourth point. Let me remind you of the point. Home. Home, wonder, wisdom, and hope. The two beginning with H and the two beginning with W. The last one is hope, verse 13 to verse 17. We will not read it, but I'll read it in part as we go through it. See, this psalm ends with the theme of hope. There's a request from God's people, a number of requests, and all of them are hopeful. There's a hope from God's people. That God would want, that God would yet again return to them. That God would return to His people once again. There's a hope in this very passage. And I want you to see it as we read verse 13. Listen to the words of verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all, our, all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and as many days as we have seen evil. There's a hope from God's people that God will return them to the land and that, as you see in verse 13, God will return to them once again and become their home. There's a hope here from God's people. And verse 15 to verse 17, there's a hope as well that God would once again use their lives for his purpose. That God would use their lives to have eternal significance. There's a hope here from God's people for that very thing. There's a great hope, and I want you to see it very clearly. There's a hope for them that God would use them once again. But as you read through the story of the Bible, you realize that this hope, the hope that in verse 13, that the covenant God, Lord in capitals, which is different from Lord in verse 1, 
the covenant God, Yahweh, would return to them, is not completely fulfilled when the people of God return back to the land. They do return back, they build the temple, and I wait for God's presence to come and dwell among them again, amongst them again. And God does come, but it never feels the same. The people actually cry after the temple has been rebuilt. And in one sense, the story of the Bible allows for that to happen because it's pointing to one who would ultimately fulfill this very, this very promise. See, Jesus comes in the New Testament as the only one who can fulfill this promise of us finding a dwelling place in God. He comes and dwells among us, John 1 tells us. The word of God, who is God himself, dwells among us. And then he lives the life we couldn't. The life that Adam and Eve couldn't. The life that the Israelites couldn't. And then he goes and dies the death that we deserved. And he rises from death. And after he's risen... He sends the spirits to come and dwell among us. And so today, you and I have the spirit of God in us. Jesus lives in us and we in him. And so he's our home. He's our home today. We're at home with God today. But as we read through the Bible, we realize as well that although we are at home with Jesus and he's with us, the Bible tells us that Jesus will one day return. To make a home ultimately with us physically here, he will bring the new Jerusalem. And as you and I wait for that day, as we live here as exiles, as Peter calls us in 1 Peter, we wait as people who sing this song, a song for the homesick, a people who long for that day one day when God will come to us. And as we sing this song, we sing it knowing that God is our dwelling place in one sense today. But we also long for the day when God will return and ultimately be with us. But while we live here, we live for him. And we live a life of eternal significance. If you're not a Christian here today, perhaps you felt the longing for a true home. Well, let me say, God, the eternal God, is offering himself up as a home to you today. So won't you consider coming to him? Let me pray. Father, help us to turn to Jesus and to live in him and for him as our true home. Amen.